Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of Parole Podcast. And today I take you to a place I believe we will need to visit. The Horn of Africa, aka Eritrea. My guest is Eden Gebreselassie, born in Milan. Both parents hailed from Eritrea, escaping the atrocities that were happening in their region. Eden is an Afro-Italian who currently lives in Harlem, New York. Fun fact, there are so many Eden Gebreselassies that I hope to bring more Eden Gebreselassies just to confuse us. True story, I came across her work while I was Googling my friend's name, you guessed it, Eden Gebreselassie, and because she didn't have a website, this Eden came first. Intrigued, I bookmarked it on my computer, and a year or so later, there she is. This one is Eritrean, my good friend is Ethiopian, one speaks Italian and the other French. Now, bring me an Eden who is from Spain or Poland. Okay, I'm back. I'm thankful that I never met someone who had Eden's resume when I was younger, because I am pretty sure it would have caused havoc with my parents. She worked in the sports and entertainment industry and enjoyed seeing the world in a unique way. She holds a FIFA International Master's degree in Management, Law and Humanities of Sports. I will let you look into that. That is for the cool factor. For the impactful one, she's the CEO of Project Sahai, a social NGO that aims to bridge a gap in the energy sector by providing solar panels in remote places in Africa. And just because Africa is not about poverty, they worked in the US as well, especially during the beginning of COVID. Project Sehai was founded by Eden's cousin, Grace Mahari, an Eritrean-Canadian lady known for her modeling career and who used her platform in a useful way. I should bring a model apart though, maybe I'll ask around. Tehai, for those of you who are not fluent in Tigrinya as I am, it means sun. I feel like giving some shout outs to the UN and other NGOs that have been working tirelessly in Africa for so many years with really great results. The other is Mr. Elon Musk, who recently tweeted this after a UN official made some remarks on his personal wealth. If WFP, the World Food Program, can describe on this Twitter thread exactly how $6 billion will solve world hunger, I'll sell Tesla stock right now. So let me leave it here, I invite you to share the episode, subscribe if you haven't done so, let a five-star review because everybody asks for it, and enjoy the show. Let me just say, Parole Podcast, East Africa represents... Uh, people will think that I'm really biased towards uh, East Africa, but it's okay. I'm from there. And today I have Eden Gebreselassie, and I say it with the right, the right way, my friends. So they're like, <laughs> they're like thousands of, and then Gebreselassie. This one is like a gem from Eritrea, who's now living in the US. Uh, we'll try to, you know, to, to understand that you guys are doing some pretty cool stuff but before that for someone who doesn't know Eritrea and I'm talking to Africans where is Eritrea what is Eritrea mm. what do you guys do other than being cute and have like <laughs> really nice ladies or you know <laughs> oh my god just like Burundi and the rest of Africa I mean um, so yeah Eritrea is in the horn of Africa it's a beautiful country because it's my country. We are uh, known to have a very kind of like someone described it as like the Switzerland of Africa. I don't oh, know if I fully, come I know, on. I know. No. I don't. I, I don't think I fully agree with that. Actually, that's yeah. Burundi. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a little stretch. But in terms of the country itself, is just beautiful. We have the mountains. We have the beach. Um, you know, we have the cold weather, we have, we have the hot weather. So it's a little bit of everything and I love it. You know, I grew up going every, every summer. Um, so I love my country, but I'm I'm biased. So it doesn't count. I can tell, but it's okay. Cause (laughs) let me, let me just say that when it comes to being, uh, the Switzerland of Africa, you guys are like a huge country compared to Burundi. So to be honest, you will compare it with something. Um, I don't know, maybe friends. Well, I don't know. That's true. But Burundi, really, because of the hills I know, and the landscape. I, I want, check me, I want to go. I want, I want to travel, you know. <laughs> we should do so. And I will, uh, hopefully we'll open. Can we go, like, 
easy peasy in Eritrea right now or do we have to wait for like nah okay there you go the truth yeah. I think Burundi will be way easier to go to right now all right mm-hmm. uh, let's just say hopefully but let me start there you seem to have like a slightly Italian accent and people will assume that you're black and so what is your story That's very correct. So I was born and raised in Milan, Italy, to parents from Eritrea, as you mentioned. So I'm definitely what I call an Afro-European or an Afro-Italian, Italian born and raised and parents from Eritrea. There you go. And what is that like to be Afro-Italian? I can sense Afro-European, I get it, but Afro-Italians. Well, it's very, it's a very delicate term because in Italy specifically, you're not given citizenship at birth. Um, So, you know, through a lot of, you know, bureaucracy, you know, if all things fall into place, you can request and obtain your citizenship once you turn 18. Uh, But unfortunately, there are over a million, you know, people in Italy right now that are living you know, without a citizenship, which then makes them really kind of um, part of the of the society, but not fully part of society, right? Mm-hmm. Because you have the opportunity to go to school, to kind of like live your life almost regular, but it's not regular because you cannot go to field trips outside of Italy with your classmates. If that, you know, it's an option, you cannot then ask for a job because you do not have you know citizenship and therefore like a work permit so there's a lot of things that a lot of negative effects that come from not being able to have citizenship at birth but for you then um i guess being a retrain really brings lots of history for me especially with that you know went through the african system went to an international school so i learned that ethiopia retreat they're like really how do I say this arrogant but for the good reason (laughs) (laughs) you know they're really they're like lots of pride Mm -hmm. growing up there and knowing your history Mm -hmm. what does it feel like well I mean I grew up in a household where um patriotism I've described it before as, as almost as vital as oxygen because we were in a state of war So I was born when Eritrea was a known country, but it was like a regional, a regional, you know, region of Ethiopia. So Mm -hmm. it was not a free country. So when I was born, Eritrea was into war against Ethiopia. And then in 1991, we uh, freed ourselves. We won the war. And then in 1993, you know, through a referendum, we officially, you know, politically became uh, free. So, you know, it is the pride comes from seeing, you know, your country at war and fighting for its freedom and fighting for its identity. A lot of times, like people think of war as like people being dead or alive. And a lot of times people don't realize that those that have survived, you know, are also part of the war. So in my family, I have a lot of people that are missing limbs people that are blind, people that are deaf because of the war or even have like mental issues, you know? So for me, when I think about Eritrea and the pride that comes with it is because of that, because I have a visual, mm. you know, uh, reminder. Visit, uh, yeah, visual reminder of, of, you know, what the war has done. So Italia, Italy, for those who know sports, they know it's... Uh, Man, they're doing well, especially with their Euro. They yeah. won against England and almost cried. Yeah, great, great uh, <laughs> few years. <laughs> yeah. But at the, at, the, at the same time, you can sense that. Because the funny thing here, to have you on, I could have gotten you for Sportive or for Parole. But I decided to go with Parole because I want you to share about your work with uh, Project Sahai. With Sahai, mm-hmm. I can tell. Yeah, okay, you yeah. said it right. There you go. Oh, no, no. <laughs> Brushing up my tigreya. But we, we don't know a lot of things, not only coming from uh, the sports industry in general, and then it happens that you're a woman, happens that you're black, it happens that from Africa, all of these layers that at some point you're like, who is this chick? That's what I want to uh, really um, present you know, to the community. 
for you, growing up in a country that is sports minded, sports, you know, everything is sports beats, uh, cycling, football, everything, you can name them. Why did you choose a career in sports? So that, that's actually a great question. And the story is very interesting. So as, as you may know, our African parents who become immigrants, they don't, they're obsessed with you being a good student. And also yeah. their dream is for you to become a lawyer or a doctor. <laughs> like there's no other option. And for me, I never really had like the dream of being a doctor or a lawyer, but I always knew that I wanted to make impact. So like I knew that I wanted to do something that would change the world to be make it a better place. And for some reason, I was obsessed with the United Nations and UNICEF. So, so when I moved to America to go to school and I started international relations with a minor in French, for me, you know, I went to school in Virginia, but I made right away the move to come to New York so that I could, um, you know, you know, start working, um, you know, at the United Nations or UNICEF. But also as someone that had just graduated and looking for a job, I was being a waitress to make ends meet. So going to my waitressing job, uh, I was on a bus and I recognized Joe Libby, who was the then um, editor in chief of Rolling Stone magazine. So I was obsessed with pop culture <laughs> and I love music, which comes from my dad. My dad is a oh. musician. And I just thought that anything that related to sports, entertainment and fun you know, again, being a good daughter of immigrants is just outside of your studies, outside of working on weekends, only if you deserve it. In talking to, you know, Joe Levy on the bus, I told him, you know, I'm looking for a job. I just graduated from college. And basically two weeks later, I was working at Rolling Stone magazine. And that completely changed the trajectory of my life because I was in an environment where, you know, in a very undirect way, we were making the world a better place, right? Like when people are happy through music or being entertained, they are happy, right? They're, they have that moment of forgetting about whatever issues that they're having. And so I realized that actually sports and entertainment are ways to make an impact, a positive impact in the world. And me being nerdy, I was like, well, now I want to learn more. Like I, I want to understand what, what this is about. So I decided to uh, move back to Europe and, you know, start the FIFA master. So the FIFA mm -hmm. soccer federation has uh, a master in international laws, humanities and management of sports um, in three different cities of Europe. So you do history of sports in Leicester in England. You do the management of sports in Bocconi in Milan, where I'm from in Italy. And then you finish the laws of sports in Switzerland, um, you know, in Neuchâtel in Switzerland, where a lot of the sporting organizations are. So once again, you know, me being able to kind of like digest all that information and learning the ins and out of the business really allowed me to be welcomed and, and be introduced to a completely different world that I didn't have any clue that existed. So then I decided to move back to New York. I basically started my journey in the sports and entertainment world. So I had short stints at the New York Cosmos, um, where Pelé played in the 70s for mm -hmm. soccer lovers. Um, and then I started working at ESPN, where I had my longest career. So let me take you back a little bit from in that bus, because honestly, it could have been a train, a plane. Mm -hmm. Who was this guy? For someone who's like, okay, I kind of know about Rolling Stone, but, you know, is it a company? Is it a band? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. means that you were reading, you know, you were following what they were doing. Yes. What did so, it feel like? Like, how do you even approach the guy? Yeah, so it, it was, I think it was very serendipity. And one of those things that only can happen in New York, I feel like, <laughs> you know, because I recognized him. Of course, I love Rolling Stone magazine from when I was in Italy, not just in America. I recognized him from MTV. So MTV was oh, a channel okay. that I loved. And there I was, mean, all, and, I, and I love history or like documentaries. Mm -hmm. And Rolling Stone would, always, I mean, MTV would always do these like, kind of like, you know, snippets of history. Yeah. And they would have, uh, you know, like opinionist people, like people that are experts in the culture. Yeah. 
So Joe Levy, I remember recognizing him because he was one of the opinionists in music and Rolling Stone magazine is basically, you know, one of the biggest, you know, legacy classic magazine sports, uh, I mean, music magazines in the world. I just recognized him from there. And I told him like, oh, I always watch when I'm TV and I love it. Da, da, da. And it was basically like an honest, you know, authentic conversation. So one thing that I always advise for people, it's like, if you do something because you really mean it, or like when you're having a conversation, when you really care about the topic, mm. it transmits to the person that you're speaking with. And so I feel like that Joe Levy then really kind of recognized, you know, the um, yeah. authenticness that came from me. That, that is amazing. So at the end, at the end, you have your job, you go there. Let, let me take you back to your parents who are like, where are you going to work? Say mm-hmm. that again. <laughs> is it a hospital? <laughs> well, the, the, the positive thing was that I had already graduated from college. Yeah. So they were kind of okay with that. I think the question was when I was like, oh, I'm going to come back to Europe to do my master's. And they were like, what? What are you master's? In? And they were like soccer. Like that made no sense to them. But again, once I graduated and they came, you know, to the graduation, they're like, oh, another degree, my daughter. So they're just happy collecting degrees. And then once I had a job, I mean, yeah, I think like jobs in sports and entertainment are one of those jobs where people are always like, not just my parents, but I feel like people don't really understand, like, what are you doing? Like, you're not on the field playing, (laughs) so what what do you need to do in sports? Like, you're not doing anything, so, you know, so it's kind of a weird world to be a part of. That Mm -hmm. is amazing, because on my podcast, most of the time, I'm like, people who are historians in sports, like, really? Like, yeah, that's your job. (laughs) You go back (laughs) and you just watch movies of, you know, Pelé or whatever. But okay, because I I believe that most of the the people listening are from Africa or the um, African diaspora descent, Mm -hmm. I want to kind of include them in these conversations, meaning they're sitting with you and they're like, okay, you, you just started a career in the sports industry where do you even start? Like, it's not because you live in New York that you have that, you know, magical moment, miracle time. Plus you had your UNICEF dream, you have, you know, your own understanding of the world. And they're like, I don't know where to start. I want to, you know, I want to work for the Brooklyn Nets. Like, "Hmm, Mm. you better start somewhere. So, so there is different avenues that someone can take, but you have to understand nowadays, like in 2021, it's actually much easier than when I started. So now you have people actively using LinkedIn, you know, so make sure that your LinkedIn is like on point. You have social media. So, you know, your own brand, like you can actually work on your own brand and become whoever you want, you know, and you can curate that. But another thing that I always talk about is like actually two things. So one more is the networking. You have to continuously network and, you know, do it in a way where, it's not just like a one and done, but have meaningful conversations with people, meaningful ways of following up with people, you know, and kind of really understand what it is that you want and continue to ask questions. And then the last thing that I think people don't really take serious is volunteering and taking internships, even if they're not paid. You know, of course, a lot of people cannot afford to take, you know, to volunteer, you know, they cannot afford the time or even financially, but you don't have to take it as like a nine to five. Sometimes hmm. people, you know, are happy with you showing up for an hour, you know, showing up as your best self and kind of like making yourself really useful for that one hour, two hours, or like on a weekend, you know, hmm. and I'm, I'm a product of that. Like I've always made myself available and I've, I've done that when I work, like even within my job, I don't just, you know, focus on my job and doing my job right. But for me, it's always important to understand like, how is my department interacting with those other departments? So I go and talk to my colleagues. I go and sometimes even sit in meetings that I don't belong in. And so like the constant curiosity, you know, uh-huh. I think that's what helps with people thriving. Again, like if it's authentic interest, I think, it, you know, it always gonna, it's always going to be perceived by people. And so people then are willing to help you. As a Burundian, let me say this. As a Burundian, uh, we have a couple of athletes who are doing well. Uh, namely, I'm not mm-hmm. saying Kenya because whatever. Mm-hmm. Consignon Seva, 
who just okay. want some word records and everything. As Africans in general, I tend to believe that we have a problem of uh, showing our face to the world. We're kind of marketing ourselves. And it feels like this could be something that, like, a, how do you say, a market that is open in Africa and, you know, big time, the, the, the opportunities from East to West to, you know, Northern. But that's the following question. What happened to the ESPN? Because ESPN that I know is ESPN that I've experienced at home. It's TV. It's the same thing like as, as MTV, I think at some point. I can't say, I can't believe I'm saying that I'm proud of having watched MTV because my mom mm-hmm. hated it. Ah, <laughs> it's just okay. so like, this, this lady is always on. And I believe she was talking about Beyonce because of, like, that was the life we had back then. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's really in- interesting to to talk with someone who's like, okay, I know about the brand, I know about ESPN. Should I get excited to work there? Of course. I mean, I love sports, big time. What was it like for you? Well, I think not just ESPN, but like big corporations and kind of corporate Mm -hmm. America in general, or even like big sporting organizations, there is a huge issue with representation. A lot of times you may have that one black person at a senior level, and then the next person is like someone at the very junior level. So I think the biggest issue is representation and continuously being able to uh, be in the right rooms to represent one another and to represent diversity again in an in a equitable way, right? It's not just about getting you know the good job with the good money, but it's also about being able to you know, move the needle and make impact, as I mentioned before, in the industry, you know, for those that are either watching or consuming a product, um, you know, and, and so on. So, you know, it's not just ESPN, I think everywhere, there is a big issue with representation. Take us to your first day at ESPN. What happened? You were young, and I guess naive at some point. Mm -hmm. What did you like? What did you get to see? Who did you get to meet, actually? I thought I won the lottery on my first <laughs> day at ESPN. I was like, I can die happy now. I don't care what happens to me. Thank you, God. Like, I mean, imagine like the first week I went to LA for a meeting. Uh-huh. Like I was just like traveling. And then, you know, next, you know, I was at Super Bowl on the floor. Of the, like the experiences I've had at ESPN are unmatched. So, you know, I don't, I don't even know what. Like how to answer that I was just like you're like okay. it was every day yeah. everything yeah but I but I think what anyone including me needs to be careful about is that just because you're living such amazing experiences you should not lose sight of the prize and the prize should be not just for you to do a good job but for you to continuously grow right so focus also on you know being promoted on you know, making the right moves for you to become, you know, a, an expert in your field for us to continue to be able to represent ourselves, you know, in the industry, because it's already like a tough industry and being, you know, a BIPOC person or being a BIPOC woman, uh, especially, you know, if you have even like, you know, I think it's called third generation, you know, at this point we're third generation. So, you know, don't lose eyes on the, uh, you know, eyes on the prize. Always like do your job well, but also think, okay, what is this going to take me? What is my next step? Who do I need to talk to for mm-hmm. my job to be seen and my job to be recognized? You know, making the right money, getting the right title, you know, of course, make sure your job backs it up. But but is it is it something that's, I think, out there in the sports industry, meaning that, women talk to women there are so few women in the sports industry and i'm not talking about the athletes mm-hmm. uh is there any network do you guys you know i don't know if someone works because you're wearing a really nice shirt <laughs> and then give it a say say, say, say ah, there you go back by uh, <laughs> nike but i am in the sports industry do i wake up and say hey let me go on linkedin uh hit up on uh, then or someone who works at nike or adidas and tell them about my project and you know i want to thrive in this industry Mm-hmm. Is it something I'm speaking only for women, you know, mm-hmm. is it something so that the, it's, so there, there are some networks. Um, mm-hmm. I can't recall the names. Yeah. There, there are some networks, but I, I don't think there is network specific to BIPOC woman. So 
I think that's that would be my answer. Maybe okay. I'm wrong, but I'm not aware of any BIPOC like sports and entertainment groups. And maybe okay. you're giving me an idea to create one. <laughs> there you go. That's what we do. Tell us about the entertainment world then, because uh, my understanding is that let me give you two, I think three, three athletes, Serena Williams, because hello, uh, LeBron James and Stephen Curry. Mm-hmm. We hear about their names and we hear about their success. And as you said, there are so many people in the sports industry. Uh, but you don't know. You're like, they're playing, but who's making all these plans? Who's planning all of these things? You know, like the opportunities are everywhere. I still have a hard time, though. And it's not because I like Nike. But on this, I'm like, you guys you should do better. There is no Serena shoe, specific shoe, like we can see in the NBA I'm like, come on, 23 slight grand slams. LeBron James, a huge amount of success, huge amount of whatever, following as well. The same for Stephen Curry. You're a woman who worked in the marketing space. Mm-hmm. And let me speak to you as an American, as in meaning because you live in America and you have that you know, um, way of saying things. And then as an African, where I'm like, there is almost nothing in Africa that will be the part two, but part one, what should be done? Something should be done to elevate more women. Because I don't want to hear about Serena in the next 10 years. You know, I still need to hear about lots and lots of people coming out. Do you feel like there is a, a space there or is it still male dominated? You can't do much. You have to, I don't know, wait for Christ to come back or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Well, no, I, I think that's a multi-layer question. I think that when it comes to Serena, she honestly has carte blanche when it comes to Nike. So I think if she wanted to do a shoe, she could do it. I don't think that's Nike not wanting to do it. I do know, as we all know, that Nike has had some issues with athletes that women athletes that kind of got dropped because they were pregnant, you know, and not supporting through through maternity. So, you know, there is a lot of, you know, issues that some brands and, and, uh, you know, they still need to get to a certain point. I think that, um, you know, the past year was pivotal for those changes, you know, with even the talk of mental health through, you know, Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka, as well as um, Carrie Richardson, Shakari Richardson. So I I think that the conversation is being had, right? So I, I think that there is a lot of different, angles that you know the business can can handle things and and a few of them are being spoken about and some are not so yeah I don't think that it's even just women I I do think that it's harder for women but you Mm -hmm. know there there is this kind of stereotype of an athlete that right now it's being kind of like there's like a reprogram in the in the industry so to to kind of focus on different aspects of an athlete or even of the industry. And one of my favorite things to always highlight is how LeBron James kind of made sure that his brand, uh, you know, is kind of solid by simply using a very simple line, which is more than an athlete, right? So he made himself be known and recognized for even more than he does on the field, uh, on the court, on, on the basketball court. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, but that's no. how I, yeah, that's how I feel. Great. And what yeah. about the space, the African space? Because here we we can talk about the the Yanis, who is Nigerian Greek, but let's mm-hmm. be honest, he's more Greek than he's Nigerian. Mm-hmm. And and for those runners who are in East Africa, who could have more to bring onto this world? Honestly, what do you see? Like even for you as a, as someone who's in the marketing space or someone who might be working with them in future, you know, endeavors, I don't know. There, like when you, when you ask me this question, it's such a delicate question, but I have a very clear answer at the same time. I have a few images that come to mind. So for example, I will never forget when Taylor Swift won at the Grammys, I think she won either like record of the year or album of the year and the whole album was about being a feminist so there was this image of her receiving her um, uh, award the grammy award on stage and behind her it was all men so her engineer her manager her producers all men so that was a paradox right because she's over here 
you know, talking about feminism and all of that, but her whole, she's not hiring women, right? Wow. So like you're pushing, you're pushing for representation and you're, you're speaking about, you know, being a minority and being mistreated, blah, blah, but you are not supporting the same person that you are speaking for. Another example is Shaquille O'Neal. So Shaquille O'Neal was at a like tech, money, wealth, something conference, I think like a few months ago or maybe last year. Shaq is all about like being a black person and, you know, he's done a lot for the community. He was talking about how he decided to sell his shoes, not through Reebok, Nike or Adidas, but through Walmart so that his shoe could be affordable for kids like him, like for kids that were like him before he became, you know, a multimillion dollar athlete. But then when someone asked him, he was talking to black people who are experts in the wealth industry. They asked him, how do you make your decisions when it comes to investing, uh, you know, in specific brands? And he said, I call my white smart people. So there is, yeah. And he just kept on making jokes about it, but he wasn't joking. Right. And then in the same breath, he was talking about how his children in order to get a job from him or whatever, they need to be educated and he wants his children to go to school, which they have the means and they were already going to school. So, you know, I hope I don't say anything controversial, but but I think there is almost like lack of confidence and lack of security within our own culture, where if a black person or African person makes it, they think that the white lawyer, white agent, white procurer, white businessman, they're going to know more. You know, we trust them more than we trust a black expert, like a black manager, a black, you know, anything. And so I think that the first thing, you know, in order to be successful is to be able to work with and grow our black, you know, people that are working in the industry. So for example, in some ways, you know, sometimes white people, they do have more access because they have not been victims of systemic oppression, systemic discrimination, and they're not first generation, right? They're not, they're actually multi-generation of wealth, knowledge, blah, blah, blah. So my thing would be, if let's say I am a famous uh, athlete and I have multi-million dollar in my pockets, if I hire a white wealth management company or a white agent or a white anything, I would ask them to hire black people so that those black people can learn through these people, right? So that's when you are creating a system of, you know, representation. And I don't think we do that enough, right? We kind of just say, help me out, help me out. And if you look at behind you know, all of these people's teams is, is all white people. How is a white person really going to push your agenda if you're speaking about anti-racism, if you're talking about representation, if you're talking about equity, if you're talking about diversity and so on? They may have good intent, but they're never going to understand you as a Black person or as a BIPOC person would. Man, I didn't know about the, the Taylor Swift and the Shaquille O'Neal. I don't know which is worse, actually. <laughs> oh, there's, <laughs> plenty, there's plenty examples like that. Okay, let, let me go with the project. We'll talk about this mm-hmm. later on. For me, as a Burundian, I really have a hard time with the UN. It's just personal. I, I still don't understand what they do, but they do things. What did you know about UNICEF and UN back in Italy as a youngster? So sadly, I was a victim of the media. So anytime I saw a poor little African kid looking hungry and then the UNICEF logo slapped on it, I thought they were the heroes, right? Like that's like, I drank the Kool-Aid. When I studied international relations, I had a few people seeing like how passionate I was about it and kind of how serious I took it. And they kind of um, were, you know, putting seeds in my head, telling me, you know, it's not everything that you think, you know, just like be careful. And I mean, still, you know, I was like trying to, you know, figure it out. But I'm not even going to tell you what I think about UNICEF or UN, but a good debate that came out this week or last week is Elon Musk saying that he was going to give up shares 
of Tesla worth about six or $7 billion and give them to the UN as long as the UN can um, show exactly how that, you know, that would remove hunger, world hunger. Yeah. So I'm interested in seeing that report too. <laughs> no, it's, it's, yeah, exactly. Because uh, honestly, I, I think Burundi and uh, I, I think at a, a certain time in uh, certain time in time, uh, Rwanda, we, we, we were like, we had everything. We were like the Switzerland by reverse. Mm-hmm. So I f- personally would like to see less and less NGOs back home mm-hmm. because it means that there's something, you know, working. Uh, but then again, I came across your NGO. So I'm like, oh, Lord, please help me. Don't tell me it's this like Westerners coming in to tell us what to do and this and this mm-hmm. and that. And then I click on and I'm like, oh, actually, okay, you're Africans. <laughs> mm-hmm. Good to know. Plus you speak the language. So you speak Tigrinya, which is, you know, great. Mm-hmm. What was it like for you guys? Because you could say, okay, we started here in, back home. We do this and we're going to help. Solo panels, great, you know want to be uh, or maybe future Elon Musk what mm-hmm. the heck there is always a need in Africa there is always a need in every space you know Brooklyn and Harlem mm-hmm. whatever why that particular sector the energy sector and mm-hmm. why you guys mm-hmm. so actually the project Sahai was born as an idea through my cousin Grace Mahari who went to um, she's a model by trade Uh, and actually grew up being also a basketball player back home in Canada. She went home to Eritrea and realized how, you know, the power electricity was a huge issue. So, you know, at times you would have electricity for only a few hours and, you know, you will see everybody scrambling to run all their errands during those few hours. And so she started simply researching about it. And she realized that, you know, solar energy could be kind of a solution she decided to kind of start a nonprofit and bring me on board. So one thing that I knew that I wanted to do if I worked at a, a solar, uh, a, a, any type of, uh, you know, nonprofit is exactly what you said. I didn't want to be the person that goes, the nonprofit that goes into any countries in development and just, you know, give them money or give mm-hmm. them anything, take pictures with kids, and then walk away and never think about it again, you know? To me, my favorite quote has always been, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day, teach a man how to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. And so for me, it's all about education. So a big piece of what we do with our, um, any project that we work on is the educational portion. In our first project that we decided to be in Eritrea in a, a little town called Maaya, we made sure that after we pro- provided over um, 105 panels, we basically taught them that the money that they were previously using for the gasoline, for candles, for, you know, carbon or any other way of for them to use, you know, electricity to, to actually open a bank account and save that money in a bank account so that two, three years after the warranty of the battery of the solar energy may finish, instead of them having to wait for us to come back and do anything, they could just basically, that money that they have been saving. Um, And another thing that we do also is like helping the local economy. So we never source the panels through foreign countries, but we always go with the local company. Uh, And we've been able to do that in uh, Eritrea. Uh, and then in Tanz in Eritrea, I think in 2017, and then in Tanzania in 20. No, I have the I have the dates wrong. Uh, yeah, I think we did Tanzania in 2019. Yeah, I think I'm correct. And then one thing that hasn't been publicized publicized yet, we just finished two projects, uh, one in Nigeria and one in Burkina Faso, and also there we use local manufacturer and local companies. So that's our way to, you know, help with, you know, in our way to be help with representation and education and, and, you know, local support. When you say you guys are using like solar panels from, you know, the local region, it could be a surprise for many to hear that there are some African companies mm-hmm. providing and, you know, manufacturing uh, solar panels. How do you get in touch with them? How do you even think about that, to be honest? Because the easy way will be, hey, I know a company in Paris or in Milan, They'll ship mm-hmm. them, blah, 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 blah. No, no, that was that was not even a thought. That was actually like 
number one rule oh. for us. Oh. There is no way we're going to not help locally. Like everything we can do to help the local region, that's what, like, that was our number, one of our number one rules. To get in touch is, that's basically, again, what I kind of mentioned before, even with work is the kind of like the curious hustle mentality. It's all about like words of my, word of mouth and just like meeting people. Sometimes we even just email people on, on LinkedIn, you know, and like ask, uh, you know, for people to come help us. And thank God we have built like a really good network. So we always have, you know, people coming now to us. And, and so, you know, we even go through like a vetting, you know, process. So yeah, in the beginning, it's just like about like, you know, asking around mm-hmm. and researching the web and researching through your own network and even schools, you know, so yeah, different Great. ways. Mm-hmm. Great. So because of your work, I now realized that you guys were in touch with, I mean, not in touch, actually partnering with uh, Giants of Africa. Correct. Hello. 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 This is uh, <laughs> this is amazing. So what is a, the partnership about and what is even Giant of Africa and for Africans to should know, but it's okay. Just describe it anyway. Yeah. So, so Masai is uh, one of his titles is to be the uh, GM uh, of the basketball team, the Toronto Raptors mm-hmm. that won the uh, championship. <laughs> Yes, for Canada, and we—it's funny enough—we <laughs> call that team Team Africa because he is African from Nigeria, but then a lot of the players in the team were Africans. Yeah. So you know, I'm not a Toronto <laughs> rapper fan, but I am always True. Team Africa. So good for you. Uh, yeah, I was definitely you know rooting for that team. So Masai is a good friend of my cousin Grace and of mine. He basically approached, you know, uh, reached out to Project Sahai because he has been unfolding um, a lot of uh, basketball courts. I think a hundred, I don't know how many there are right now, but like a hundred basketball courts in Africa, in different wow. countries of Africa. And so he came to us to ask to partner with uh, bringing solar energy to specific basketball courts. So we were able to partner with them and basically bring, uh, you know, in Nigeria, find a local solar energy uh, company that, you know, uh, basically set up solar panels for Mm -hmm. Nigeria and the same thing with Burkina Faso. We found a local Burkina Faso uh, solar panel, solar energy company that set up the solar panels. So these two basketball courts are going to function through solar energy. Ah. Great. So when you think about it, is it because Nigeria and Burkina Faso, and I believe in the East, they're like tall people and you guys are discriminating against other countries? Oh my God, that's so funny. Yeah. Masai is huge. You know, he's like, I don't know. He's he's huge. (laughs) No, no, actually, no, I actually think it was simply timing. Uh, At first we were supposed to do other ones in the East Coast, uh, in the, you know, in the East Coast of Africa. But the good thing about solar energy is you can always bring it. You can always, yeah. uh, you know, set it up. So, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure we'll be in different regions of Africa. <laughs> it, but, but in all honesty, we, that was our first time working on the West Coast because we've always done okay, we yeah, Eritrea, we did Tanzania. So it was time for us to also move on that side. So, so I feel like the next part will be Burundi. I'll uh, take you to my... Yeah, Burundi, hey. South, uh, you know, we need Come to... Uh, north, uh, you know, we need to yeah. touch all... Uh, can you give us like numbers of your projects? How many people did you have? I, I will be remiss if I didn't ask how the women even profit from your, you know, your involvement. Because mm-hmm. this is like a, like something that someone should be proud of. And I believe you guys are proud of it. And what is the project for the future, actually? Mm-hmm. You know? A little disclaimer. We had a lot of projects, but COVID kind of uh, stalled a lot of them. So we are having a lot of conversations and we're kind of, you know, decided what next steps are. Hopefully, you know, I will be able to share some more soon. Mm-hmm. But um, when it comes to women and stats, so for example, in Maya, in Eritrea, we were able to give 105 panels to a village that uh, has more than 500 people. So it was for each home and then the schools and the, uh, the mosques and the um, churches. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the main thing is, uh, I'm glad you asked about the woman. What they were telling us is that the fumes 
of the carbon that the women were using for cooking or the fire were actually making the woman go blind at an early age or having issues with their lungs. So what we learn is that women are the ones that need energy the most. So anytime, you know, you provide solar energy, you're probably helping the woman the most because they stay home and they're the, you know, the home takers or they're running errands. And so that is part of kind of, you know, helping them a lot. Uh, and then in Tanzania, we actually, in, in Arusha, we, we, did a school. So we provided about almost 20 solar panels for a school with over 860 students. And so that was really helpful. And the students were from elementary school to high school. So Mm. all ages, I guess, from five to 16, 17. So there, what, you know, what helped was that students sometimes couldn't do their homework at home or in school because of the, the lights would go off. So thanks to providing solar energy, they have lights. So they, they could stay either after school or, you know, before, you know, school started and do their homework or do other things while, you know, thanks to having solar energy. Uh, Do you think you guys, you guys, girls, most likely, Mm -hmm. uh, you, you will stick to solar panels or you just open up to different things? I don't know. Maybe you will think about the ed tech or. Uh, bringing on some IT thing in in East Africa, we all need that. Or you're mm-hmm. just thinking about the solar panels and for the ne- next five to 10 years, we'll focus on that, bring more energy back home. And if there are partnerships coming up, mm-hmm. why not? But uh... So overall, we believe in um, sustainability, right? So whether it's like sustainable clothing or clean water, so all everything that encompasses you know, sustainability, eco-friendly approach, and basically a better world for all of us, we are in it. Mm. Right now, our focus is with solar energy, but, you know, you can never say, never say never. So we're, we're a pretty flexible group. But I just realized Elon Musk is South African. So is it like cheating if he sends you some solar panels? Because if you say we're going in the southern part of Africa and you call this guy. Never say never, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And we would love to partner with Tesla, to be honest with you, you know, yeah. but in a way where it's equitable for everybody involved. Mm. All yeah. right. So uh, let me finish by just saying something that I saw on your uh, LinkedIn and made me laugh. And I said, ha, this is what, it's, this is what it looks like to be uh, someone who traveled and in terms of identity, you still don't know where you're at. So human cultural bridge. That's <laughs> it. So... Yes, yeah. I get I get the point, but can you just give us more uh, examples or just uh, explain what it is? I say that I'm a human cultural bridge because I am part of different cultures, right? So I was born and raised in Italy to parents from Eritrea. I live in America for so long. And a lot of times, and, and I speak five languages, and a lot of times people think, oh my God, you speak a lot of languages, that's so cool. <laughs> Well, what people don't understand is that speaking languages is also a way to be closer to people's culture. So like, you know, understanding that in some countries you kiss instead of hugging or like in some cultures, you cannot show up to somebody's house empty handed, you know, that would yes. be a big offense. And I try to do it in a way where, again, it's like equitable and also it helps whether a person, a company, uh, you know, anything in layman's terms. People know me as the dot connector. So like if I'm talking to you and I think, oh, you know, I have another friend that is from Burundi or I have another friend that is like in sports and is doing a podcast, I always, I would connect you. So I've always kind of functioned that way, whether it was through my job or, you know, in my personal life. So that's what I mean by human cultural, uh, you know, bridge is that I like to connect the dots in a very meaningful and um, thought out way. Can you tell that I'm proud of myself for not asking some like uh, crazy questions about ESPN and the whole diversity thing? I'll just keep it light. What do you think diversity and inclusion will look like in the next five to 10 years? Uh, I want to always make sure that we also include the word equity in diversity and inclusion. Equity, you know, diversity is who is in the room. Inclusion is who is in the room, but also has the opportunity to speak and be heard. And then equity is basically the person also gets a, a slice of the pie, right? I feel like the more, you know, it's two-sided. 
finally, uh, BIPOC people are, you know, in a place I think where, you know, they're using their platforms and their positions to speak up, to not be afraid to enter spaces that they thought they didn't belong in. People are creating their own spaces, you know, the famous, you know, if you don't have a seat at the table, create your own table, you know what I mean? Like, you don't need to be, like, we don't have to want to be in, you know, in other people's places, like we can create our own places. And so I think we just need to push forward with that, right? Being vocal, being educated, being strong in what we believe, help one another, you know, create coalition with one another and just like be strategic, but in in an authentic way with everything that you do, you know, like, you know, like I said, like if you are in a room, don't be happy to just be in that room. Think about it. How can I grow in this room, but also how can I let other people access this room that look mm-hmm. like me, that come from my same background, right? Like be the voice you wished that was there for you. And what's next for you, Eden? Uh, are you maybe becoming like a board member for at Nike? Because they do need some uh-huh. black folks over there. No, put, put it in the universe. No, no, honestly, no, right, right now I'm just weighing, I'm weighing my options. There you go. Just weighing my options all right thanks for coming here and uh yeah it's it's been it's been fun and it's really funny to talk about sports entertainment pop culture along the way ngos and you're like okay there you go this is eritrea and this is burundi thanks a lot how many say goodbye in five languages i don't think there is goodbye in tigrinha actually i'm sure people are gonna judge me right now but but actually i don't think you say goodbye like you just say Haraimo is like, okay, cool. Like, you just, I don't know. Actually, I never even. That's great. Because you say hello, you say salam. In oh, yeah. Kenya, yeah. But I never. You never say hi to people. <laughs> you say hi, you say salam. Yeah. But you never say goodbye. You're like, okay, cheers. That's, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You that's say great. ciao. You know, I don't <laughs> That's the question. <laughs> and then, you know, in French, you know, au revoir. Spanish is adios. Which, if I translate adios, is adio. In, in Italian, is ciao or adio. But I, again, I don't have it in, in it. And then in English, is goodbye or see you later or see yep. you soon. Yeah. All right, then. All right, then. There you go. <laughs> Thanks a lot. How do you it in Burundi? What, what's your um, language? Yeah, it can really, uh, yeah, it's it's like see you. Basically, it's okay. like to subira, to do subira, like see you. Yeah, okay. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs>